You're listening to And hey, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we have an author chat for you. This time we're talking to Maureen Gu, who is returning to the podcast after uh, after several years uh, to talk about her newest book, Throwback, um, which is a YA time travel um, coming of age story about a girl named Sam who, um, after having a fight with her mom, um, inadvertently travels back to the year 1995, where she um, meets her mom as a teenager. Yeah, I remember when we announced this book in one of our news episodes when the book deal came out. And uh, you and I, Marvin, were just like, oh, my God, this is our book. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like it's made for us, even though we're old people. <laughs> well, I mean, I think because we're old people and now we are stuck in, you know how like nostalgia is just it's just something that becomes more and more powerful the older you get. And especially 90s nostalgia, uh, especially, especially because, I mean, the 90s were back. I think now we're in the, right in the return. Of the we're in Oz, the 2000s. Right? Yeah. yeah, we're well, well, now we're gearing more towards like 2010s where yeah. we're starting to get there i'm seeing the beginning signs and i'm like huh it's yeah. moving very quickly <laughs> in terms of uh trends yeah but um it was really great to have maureen back um she was one of our earliest author chats on this podcast so it was back when we like recorded at the collaboration office and <laughs> uh, we didn't have zoom back then so it was it was a yeah. very different setup i'm pretty sure we recorded maureen's episode in your apartment like i brought my whole like this is before i even had, no no like, a... no it was at the collaboration office i do remember was this it? um yeah it was wow it was like pre-conference call proliferation like, it was pre-pandemic so yeah we weren't used to uh having authors like <laughs> call in digitally yeah. or um by phone so it, it was a learning experience for all of yeah, us yeah like talk about throwback it's you know when maureen was first on the show we were both just starting out in the podcast world you know not knowing that this show would last another 200 episodes <laughs> i mean like like we said like maureen was like one of our earliest interviews and i can't like i can't go back and listen to myself from like <laughs> from from those early years because i'm like oh my god i am so bad at speaking like i am very bad at inter interviewing people on like audio i'm but, sure um, we were fine but i also will not i'm sure we were but i have like very you know i'm very self-critical but um, yeah yeah it was great to have but, yeah. maureen back on the show um, we had a lot of fun talking about 90s nostalgia and mother-daughter yeah. relationships. Yeah, so please enjoy our chat with Maureen Gu. And we're here with Maureen Gu, the author of several acclaimed books for young adults, including I Believe in a Thing Called Love, The Way You Make Me Feel, Somewhere Only We Know, and most recently, Throwback. Welcome to the show, Maureen. Welcome back to the show. Wow. Yeah, welcome back <laughs> to the show. God, I know. So we were just talking about that. It's been six years? That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, we had you on back in 2017 when your book, I Believe in a Thing Called Love, came out. And you were one of our first author interviews. Oh, wow. And yeah. like what an it's, honor. It's so crazy <laughs> thinking about how much time passed. Yeah, this was like before Zoom. So we had you like call in on your cell phone and I had a whole like mixed minus setup so we can take your cell phone call and loop it into our recorder. Oh, my gosh. It was a... It's different different time, which is kind yeah. of a timely um, topic or theme for this episode. <laughs> yeah. Nice segue. I also remember how, um, what is it? it? This was like back when I was like, oh, this is just going to be a book club podcast. We're not going to have like authors on our <laughs> show and interview them. But uh, clearly that did not happen. <laughs> and <laughs> and like, I, I remember our last conversation. It was just like so much fun. So I'm really glad that you're um, able to come back on. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah. I mean, so it's since the last time we talked, it's been you've written four whole books. 
And I was just curious, like, how has that been for you? How, what have you learned about yourself as an author, as you've, you know, written so many stories? I, you know, that's such a good question. What have I learned about myself? Um, that I needed a break. <laughs> no, um, I mean, that is actually um, something, something I did learn, but um, uh, that every book is different and challenging in its own way, that you are not an expert just because you've written a few books. You feel kind of like a first time author every single time. You never know what your book is, where your, you know, where your book is going to take you, where your characters are going to take you. And also just the reception to my books and the way that publishing, especially YA, has changed since 2017, even. Um, that's just kind of been an interesting, you know, evolution to witness as well. Yeah, it's been interesting to see like this surge of Korean American authors, because I remember like back in like 2017, 2016, I mean, there were a couple, but it wasn't like the number of uh, Korean diaspora authors there are right now in young adults. So yeah, the landscape has changed quite a bit. It has. It's pretty incredible, you know, and it's, it's really cool. Obviously it's all wonderful and it's just so fast <laughs> but you know it feels fast and then you're like well books have been published for how long and it's been a long time coming as well yeah and you also have an adaptation deal for somewhere uh, only we know I mean that's pretty exciting yeah it's been really a wild ride um I think it was almost 2017 or 2018 when we were out pitching that thing. So it's just been, there's a lot going behind the scenes that I can't really talk about, but it's been really, really cool, you know, just to be able to work on the other, like another side of telling a story, seeing my books take on a different life in a different medium um, and see how other people interpret that. It's been really, it's been really interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, something that hasn't changed is every time we, see the description of a Moringu book, we're like, oh, that sounds really awesome. <laughs> this speaks straight to our heart. Even from the very beginning when you when you did your your YA high school K drama <laughs> rom com, we were like, man, it was it was a time when we didn't see a lot of books that really like embraced Asian pop culture like that. And you know, your your new book is no different. Um as as someone who did grow up in the 90s, I really resonated with with your premise. <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah, you know, so Throwback, um, I guess I can give like a little pitch for what yeah, it's about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Throwback is about a high school teenager named Sam who doesn't get along with her mom, who's first generation Korean American. Her mom is very like um, aspirational, like Americana. So I, you know, she's kind of like an LA, like Korean American, like, goop uh, devotee type lady, you know, um, she's kind of perfect. And she has the same expectations for her daughter. She wants her daughter to like be homecoming queen and a cheerleader, all this stuff. And Sam is like very much no thank you. So they get into a huge fight. And um, after the fight, she gets a ride share to school. And then when she gets to school, she realizes it is 1995 and she is uh, in high school with her mother. So it's, you know, Back to the Future meets Joy Luck Club is the best way to describe it, I think. Um, she's got to figure out why she was sent back in time. And I think we can all kind of guess why. But uh, it's really, it was so fun to write. And, you know, thank you for saying that you get excited about my books descriptions, because I really like to have like a fun hook for the storytelling. Because, you know, Throwback is really a mother-daughter story. And it's, as you can imagine, that can be pretty heavy. That can be kind of angsty. I really had to dig deep into my own kind of memories of me and my mom in high school. And, but I really want it to feel fun too. So my number one goal is always to write like a really fun premise to like, then be the vehicle for telling an interesting story about these characters. And I believe in a thing called love when that came out, which was that the book we talked about when I was? Yeah, on that's here? the book that we talked about. Oh my about. gosh. Wow. Okay. 
Um, that was your second book, right? Yeah, it was my second book. All, also, my first and second book had a four-year gap, which is unheard of in YA. And right now, this book is a four-year gap. Since my last book, um, it's an interesting journey to to follow with you guys. But um, yeah, that book has this K-drama premise. And when that when I was writing it and trying to sell it, I remember thinking like, gosh, this is going to be wild in publishing. Who's going to want this? K- the people don't even really know what K-dramas are outside of Asian, you know, Asian culture. So it felt kind of risky, but I also had, for me, I had like a instinct, like I think K-dramas are going to become more mainstream and being a fan of both K-dramas and YA novels, like there's definitely like a potential for a big Venn diagram overlap with these two audiences. So it's wild to think that that was a risky move back then. Cause now it's like, you see books pitched as a, it's like a K-drama, you know, <laughs> and everybody knows what that is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like we have an entire category of K-drama, K-pop um, inspired books on our bookshop. And also like, just like meeting with a lot of author, Korean American authors who have written uh, you know, coming of age stories, a lot of them have like touchstones like K-pop and K-dramas. And it's like funny because when I talk to them about it, they say like, oh, like that's like kind of what publishers want. It's like the commercial, uh, commercialized pitch. And I'm like, that used to not be the case back back when we started. So <laughs> yeah, I was very concerned. I remember when we were trying to sell that book, like, oh God, all these like New York publishing people are going to be like a K-drama. What is that? So part of it, like if you read that book, I explain K-dramas a lot because it was supposed to be like, just in case, like none of you guys know what the heck I'm talking about. This is, you know, it was like a fun introduction to K-dramas for people, I think, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And this was before like Netflix. Now there's just (laughs) so many Korean dramas. I know. Yeah. It's wild. I love that this, a theme that we're touching on here is that uh, Maureen Gu is pop culture Nostradamus because she <laughs> um, predicted the popularity of K-dramas. But also from this book, she also predicted the popularity of mother, daughter, immigrant, children of immigrant stories because, you know, your book is coming out like literally following the like the year of the mother-daughter Asian-American movies. Yeah, like Turning Red and Everything Everywhere (laughs) All at Once. I know. It's really... Okay, so obviously, not to be like, I get it first, because who knows, right? (laughs) Everything takes forever. Um, I know animated movies take, like, for firsthand, my husband's a director for animated movies. They take years. Um, Everything Everywhere All at Once, perfection. You know, um, I... So when I thought about this book, it was many, many years ago, and... Uh, I remember thinking like, okay, it's going to go deep into Asian American mother daughter stuff in a way that I haven't seen before, because it's not about like, technically like tiger mom, you know, that kind of story, which I did kind of write with my first novel since you asked kind of had that kind of mother daughter relationship, but it's kind of like a more modern as I wrote. So my career has spanned like 10 years at this point, like I have grown older, the teens have, you know, the parents have gotten younger. So it's just like, oh, I'm in a different, like, uh, generation right now. And I had to really rethink, like, how to approach a mother-daughter story from that angle. And then, yeah, I saw Turning Red and I was like, oh, okay, this is talking about generational, like, um, breaking cycles of trauma and mother-daughter stuff. And I was like, oh, kind of reminds me of Throwback. Cool. Then I watched Everything Everywhere All at Once. I'm like, oh, my God. And, you know, I just realized, oh, it's because all of us are making this stuff now. Right. All I am of a certain generation. You know, I'm a geriatric millennial is what they call us, I think. And now we're all the ones making movies, writing books, TV shows. So it's not a coincidence that suddenly we're seeing all this. Um because we get to tell our stories. And if you talk to most Asian American women, you're like, what's your relationship with your mom? Like (laughs) very complicated, man. So I I feel like there's so much rich ground and there's so many different ways to tell these stories. So I don't feel territorial or protect, you know, or like competitive. I'm like, yes, we're all adding to a conversation. We all have wildly different 
experiences, by the way, even though it all kind of has the same spine of like the, there's a lot of healing that needs to happen. Right. But, um, it is, that's so funny. I love, I'm going to claim that, uh, Nostradamus, uh, (laughs) I think it's a fitting title. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I was, I'm so happy that all this, I mean, it's just such a cool time to be a creator. You know, I feel really excited by all the stories out there right now. And the mother-daughter stuff really hits, obviously, for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it's like a very universal story. Um, like, you briefly mentioned that your own relationship with your mother could be fraught. That's like a, um, I guess, like an, a simplified um, description of it. Uh, can you tell us more about, like, how your own personal relationship with your mother helped you develop um, Priscilla and Sam's relationship? Yeah. So yes, my, you know, I've kind of, I've done a few interviews and written a few things about this book. And I always kind of started off as when I was a teenager, my most complicated relationship with was with my mom. And there are a lot of reasons for it. Our personalities, first of all, are very similar, which I think was the reason why we're <laughs> we're both kind of like combative, um, defensive, critical people. And, you know, then there's obviously my mom was an immigrant and she grew up in Korea and I was the first, the oldest kid growing up in the U.S. So my mom just didn't get it. She didn't get any of my experiences, didn't understand any of my you know, um, the things I wanted as a teenager was just so preposterous to her. Like, I want to hang out at the mall with my friends. My mom would be like, what? Hang out? I remember my mom be like, what is hang out? She'd just be like, I don't understand. Like, you should be doing so many other things, you know? And I'm like, what, sit at home alone? <laughs> do homework? Like, I can do homework in like two hours, you know? So we just, and then there are like other things going on that just made it really, it, nothing serious. It was just like a conflict and personality and value systems. And, uh, you know, my mom just truly didn't get it and I didn't get her. And that's kind of what the inspiration for the book was, because as I grew older, I just so understand where my mom was coming from. I'm like, man, it's actually a miracle. My mom was as functional as she was that I, that I got to experience, like I had such a good life growing up, but I always just complained and thought it was awful. And it's only with time and lots of therapy that I'm like, oh, okay. I totally see. My mom had no tools to deal with a teenager like me. She was really doing her best. She was so stressed all the time because of financial stuff. You know, my mom really was the, the person in charge of our family. My dad was around, but my mom is like her personality. She's like a leader and she is really, really smart and she's really resourceful. So she was kind of like the one. Um, and it was a lot of to carry. And of course she did all the childcare because Korean patriarchal, uh, shit that she was stuck in, you know, my dad was, did his best, but my dad too, didn't know. He didn't know how to be the kind of dad that could have helped out more. He had absolutely no, uh, he had no reference for that. And so my mom did everything. And so when I look back on that, I'm like, it's really, I, I'm grateful um, at the same time, teenage me, I understand why everything was so hurtful. And I have a lot of empathy for young me too, because my mom just didn't know how to talk to me. And it was very frustrating. And so this book to me was like, what if when I was 16, I had a shortcut to figure to understand my mom, like that I, you know, and that came in the form of a, you know, time traveling hatchback car. Um, and so, you know, Sam and Priscilla, their dynamic is not very similar to what my mother and my dynamic was. I would say that my dynamic was closer to, um, the one that Priscilla has with her mom, um, Sam's hymeny in the book. And, but the core is this idea of a lack of communication and this like kind of, um, it's so hard to get beyond, you know, when you, your family, you just have perceived notions from a very early time and dynamics that are very hard to break out of. Even when you're an adult, your, your family treats you this, like you're the same person as you were when you were 13. So that's kind of where 
all the inspiration came from. And I think that's a universal, you know, that's not an Asian American immigrant specific thing. That's very universal with teens and their parents. So it's very wish fulfillment to think that you can see your parents as teenagers and understand them and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a, you know, a, a key part of any like child of immigrant story or just child of parent story is the point where um, you realize that your parent is also like a fully formed three-dimensional person and not just like mom or dad. Right. Yeah. That is like <laughs> when you have that moment, you're like, oh, <laughs> they don't just live to serve me. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you're, you're a parent now. And um, has that really like, has that helped you uh, on developing Priscilla's perspective on her daughter? Because you're a Korean American and, um, you know, you're kind of in the same position as Priscilla. Yeah. So I started writing this book before the pandemic and before I became a mom or became pregnant even. And then I was drafting it when I found out I was pregnant. I was like rewriting it for my agent before we went out to sell it. And so then I found out I was pregnant. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to become a mom. And then 2020 happened and everything that happened in 2020, you know, there's so much turmoil in the world and in America specifically, you know, Black Lives Matter, all the Asian hate crimes. I was like, what, (laughs) what country am I bringing my child into? And, you know, initially it was the, I was going to have a more, I mean, not to, I'm not going to spoil anything in the book, but it's going to be more like American dream, right? Like, what is the American dream? And then I became very critical of the American dream when I was drafting. And I also read Kathy Park Hong's book, My uh, Minor Feelings. And I felt like, oh, it kind of just shifted my view on what this book is actually about. It's about, you know, the mother-daughter stuff is the heart of the book. But really, it's kind of, if you like kind of zoom out, it's like what happens you know, our, the people, our family who came here for this, for a better life in this country, what happens like the further removed you are from that, you know, like I am a child of immigrants. So I still have a lot of immigrant, um, mentality, you know, like there's a bit of, you know, striving and wanting a better life and wanting to prove that my parents came here and succeeded wanting to, um, believe in the American dream. But unlike my parents, I'm a lot more critical of America. I'm a lot more because I have that privilege. I have that privilege of understanding the everything and being a part of the fabric of this culture, like from the beginning. And then I thought about my son who was about to be born. And I was like, and you know, he's only half Korean. What is his? He's half white and half Korean. And it's like, what is your connection to Korea gonna be mine is you know pretty strong but I'm still very American I go to Korea and I'm treated like an American there um and how is he gonna understand my parents struggles when they came here and then my struggles as a kid of uh, immigrants like is he just gonna be like super American and have no connection to this and it made me feel very sad slash I'm trying to break cycles, right, of trauma. So I'm also excited at him, you know, the stuff that I've learned. And I go to therapy. <laughs> I take anti-anxiety medicine. I do all this stuff so that I don't put the same shit on my son that um, my parents kind of put on me. I don't blame them. They didn't know. Um, so, yes, I had to think a lot about that stuff. The book is not as heavy because you know I had him I had him and I I feel like I'm figuring out what motherhood really is obviously my son's only like two and a half now so every day it's different um but yeah all of that is in that book (laughs) and you know I I hope you can see it but also not because I don't want it to feel like work I want it to be like it's just adding to the layers of the story yeah. I know this is a very serious conversation, but I would like to reassure our <laughs> listeners. The book is really funny. I like was laughing throughout I the know. entire thing. <laughs> when I talk about like 2020, you know, all this stuff is happening. Everyone's like, oh, no. I'm like, no, but the book is literally like 90s fashion, the mall, 
her and her mom are so mean to each other. There's a romance that's like super cute, you know. Um, yeah. It is fun, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sam in your book is like, you know, it's, it's not mapped one-to-one to, to your own life, right? Because Sam is a Gen Z teenager, the daughter of like a Gen X um, child of immigrant. Um, and then... I'm also like a geriatric millennial. So like when I map to the 90s, I think of like late 90s. And your book Uh takes place in 1995, which is like pre, even pre-cell phone, pre-dollop internet. Like it's a very, it it was a very different time. Um, How did you decide to set it in like this specific time period? Like even 1995, thinking about it, like it was before even like Boba made its big like splash into like American (laughs) culture, right? Like the first... Lolly yeah, Cup Boba. or Tactics was like 1999, mm-hmm. 1998. Like this is before even like, even that stuff was like Asian coal, right? Yeah. I mean, that actually answers some of it. I wanted it to be, um, so yeah, I was not, I'm a little younger than Priscilla, but honestly, not by much. One, I was like, I cannot be the same age as the mom in my books. <laughs> so that was one reason. But two, because my, I grew up, I did not have Priscilla's experience. You know, I grew up in a very, I grew basically the, the suburb in the book is the suburb I grew up in just with a different name. And it was very, pretty diverse by the time I got to high school. And not only that, but specifically I had a ton of Korean American friends. So I did not have the, I did not face the specific problem that Priscilla faced, but you know, there are Korean Americans at school with Priscilla. She just kind of rejects them. And I wanted, I, I did not have the kind of assimilation um, aspirations that Priscilla had, but, you know, a few years older than me, I had neighbors, cousins that were much more pressured to be Americanized because it was just, they grew up a little more John Hughes, right? They grew up a little more um, Sweet Valley High. Whereas I think I grew up just that tiny micro generation between Gen X and me. I think it made a big difference in my, in LA anyways, of, um, and in my specific suburb of like how the uh, tide changed as far as like culturally. So by the time I was in high school, like liking Korean things were not, was not on cool. Um, not that it was super cool, but like the, there were cool Korean kids, you know, and and truly I was not one of them. Just so you guys know, the cool Korean kids thought I, I wasn't was like, either. Yeah. yeah, they thought I was like super dorky because I like to read too much, and like I, they called me whitewashed. You know, I actually did was called a banana by one of my best friends, who is still one of my best friends today, and he was like, he'd be so. I was like, I put that banana comment in throwback, just so you know, and he's like, oh my god. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so their experiences were different than mine. I did not have those pressures, but I was inspired by that because I was like, that is that because my cousins have kids that are teenagers now. So I felt like, okay, I can write about that age gap pretty well, that generation gap, because I I have a lot of experience witnessing it. Um, And, you know, I was there in the 90s. I just was a little younger. So super easy for me to transport to 1995. Um, And 1995, at first it was 1993, but, you know, the book took longer than I thought. So I'm like, okay, 1993 is now too far away. Um, I also had in mind the pandemic and I needed to have this be a post-COVID world, not post, but like COVID had to have happened. I'm not going to pretend like it never happened, but I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. So I wanted the time. So the book is actually set. Modern time is uh, 2025. 2025, yeah. 2025. So that, you know, we don't have to make it. I don't, I kind of didn't want to go into COVID, but it's there. It's like, you know, it happened. Um, So there was a lot of math that I had to do with like, okay, what year can it be now? How much can I stretch it? How old is Priscilla? How old is Sam? Like I kept having to like, rejigger that but 1995 is actually perfect because better music came out by then (laughs) (laughs) and like yeah I was like kind of googling what happened like in the news and when was the internet popular again when does Starbucks come around like I had to do a lot of random research to like create this world um to make sure I was accurate uh and 1995 was a very good place culturally as far as like music fashion all that stuff 
where it was still in my brain. 1993 was, I was a little too young to remember those things, but 1995, I'm like, okay, I got it. So that's why I picked that year as a sweet spot. Yeah. I thought it was really funny how you brought up like the uh, cool Koreans because uh, one (laughs) thing that I thought you did really well was show the clickiness of a lot of like uh, Korean Americans and also like uh, Korean immigrants. Like you have like the church group and I'm Mm -hmm. like, I was part of the church group. (laughs) I I feel represented. (laughs) And you have like the um, and you have like Priscilla who, you know, wants to be. Uh, assimilated with like mm-hmm. the popular white cheerleaders and jocks and as someone who went to high school in Georgia I definitely saw that and mm-hmm. um, yeah I just like love the portrayals and I just love how uh, even though I'm younger like I'm I'm like straight up millennial like there were a lot of things that I like remember about like my time in high school and middle school. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, Was there anything from the nineties you found yourself especially nostalgic for other than music? Yeah. Music was definitely number one. Um, We have the best music. That is, we did, right? Yeah. I've said this. This is when like hip hop and R and B was like the best R and B. We had like such good, like kind of the like popular grunge, which I thought was you know like sorry to say like hardcore grunge. I don't care, but like the popular stuff was so fun. Alanis came out. Oh, so much good stuff. Yeah, this is like Lilith Fair was starting. You know. Oh my gosh, so much good stuff. The R&B was insane. TLC, everything. But I, I will um, say like 2000s R&B might be slightly oh, better than Yes, 90s, 2000s, 2000s is good. Yeah. 90s was more like the croony ballady stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah. remember those playing at the our middle school dances, like the slow dance part. You'd have like yes. TLC or... And Vogue. Or some like rap music that like <laughs> no one really knows the meaning you know, behind. Boys to Men, you know? Boys to Men, yes. Really peak... Um, yeah, Tag my soundtrack. Team, there it is every like Tuesday. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> oh my God, roller rink. Um, yeah, I was nostalgic for a pre pre uh, cell phone life, actually. And I know that's like cliche for people to be like, remember, we're all attached. Because there's part of me that gets really annoyed when people like talk crap about cell phones. Because I'm like, but you're on it all the time. Don't act like you don't actually like your cell phone. Obviously we do. Google Maps is the best. Being able to talk to people around the world and text them for free is essentially magic. Um, But you had, as a teenager, you got into predicaments because you couldn't just have your cell phone. So I feel like there were adventures that you could have. And um, being in the real world, I feel bad for teens that... Don't get that. You know, there is something that is lost forever, I think, with a certain kind of teen culture, which I think is, um, for us, it's sad. You know, I think about my therapist all the time who tells me people like meet the moment that they're given. So we think, oh, no, kids are going to live in this horrible world, right? My son is going to always know about climate change. What a bummer. He's going to live in a world where he has to worry about so much more stuff. But that's just the reality he's born in. You know, my my parents are like, it's so sad you grew up with TV. Like when we were kids, we played till it was nighttime in the street. <laughs> like there's always something like that. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of like nostalgia. Like that word is very accurate. It's nostalgia. It's not it's not something we should actually be sad about. But when I was writing this and I was trying to, you know, there's so many plots so many things can work as a storyteller. Not having cell phones is the best thing ever. Cause you're like, Oh, I can contrive so many, um, so many predicaments because these kids can't effing text each other, you know? <laughs> um, and there's no like maps and you can get lost and you can, and like, you have to depend on a bus where you oh have to take a bus with the cute boy you have a crush on. So it's just, um, I thought that that was really, I, I found myself thinking, Oh, there was a really, there was like a magic time right before cell phones. Yeah. I always wonder, like, what do people even use coins for anymore? Because back back in the 90s, it was for uh, pay phones and bus fare. Right? I know. Well, there are still some um, parking meters in Los Angeles that mm. only take <laughs> coins. 
And it's so funny because my son dumped out my wallet the other day and all these coins came out and he was like, ooh, like he'd never seen them before. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it's going to be yeah, like an- I mean, antiques. <laughs> antiques. <laughs> my my youngest brother is uh, 17 years younger than me. So he is like, wow. Uh, he's like the tail end of Gen Z, beginning of uh, Generation Alpha. And it's just like crazy to me that like he has always had an iPad. Like that was his main like learning tool. And I'm like, that's that's <laughs> insane because I remember growing up and the only piece of entertainment that I had were books and math flashcards that my mom <laughs> would drill me with. <laughs> but I know I thought, like, I thought like you you captured uh just like that nostalgia um in, in your book. Oh, thank you. It was a fine line of like, how much do I want to get into with 90s, you know, and how much do I have to keep the plot moving? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, speaking of like you talked about doing the mental math, like just to me, writing about time travel is just so such a complicated and like um, challenging task. And um, I wanted to ask, how did you come up with like how time travel works in your novel? Like what led you to even decide that, okay, the, the medium of time travel will be rideshare. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I love time travel stories so much. I like the overly simplistic ones, like the one I wrote, and which was heavily, you know, inspired by Back to the Future, obviously. And then I really like the complicated real sci-fi stuff too that like makes your brain hurt trying to like figure it out. So I like the whole spectrum of time travel. I think it is always like, you know, I'm always aiming for the goosebump feeling of you're like, Oh, there's some, you know, it's just like the anticipation of some twisty, weird um, stuff happening unbeknownst to you. So, but I am not a science person. I hate thinking too hard. Um, I don't like research. This is a big reason why I write contemporary YA novels. It's like, um, I just want to use my own brain and not have to make sure that like facts are, um, <laughs> are accurate because I'm very lazy about that stuff. And so my version of time travel, I based it, I was very much influenced by the eighties movies of magical hand wavy. (laughs) Things just happen like big. Oh, I went to a fortune teller machine and then suddenly I became an adult. Who knows why? Um, Freaky Friday. One day I'm my mom. I don't know why, who knows? Some magical thing happened. Um, and so for that's kind of where I came up with the magical rideshare. I didn't want to, I didn't want any scientists involved. I don't want like any um actual like how did this happen? It's like, who knows? Somehow this like woman in this rideshare knew I needed I needed to learn a lesson in life. And they sent me a rideshare. So that's kind of where like my sci-fi um, you know, leanings begin and end. And so that's how I thought of the whole basic premise. Cause yes, I thought of back to the future and I thought, okay, they like went in a little literal car. I'm not going to do that. Right. <laughs> Cause I don't want to have to describe how, where did this car come? And then I just thought, oh, I could have a car, but it, it's, it's modern day. It has to be like an Uber or something. Right. Um, and so I actually, that was a very early thing. Magical time, uh, magical rideshare done. (laughs) Um, and let's not change it. Let's not like have to go into it. And, you know, the time travel is very hand wavy and throwback. Um, and cause I think if you get too in the weeds, then you get like, not, you you get so many knots and you have to like undo them and figure it out. And, you know, I had a version of this where I thought of multiverses where, Sam had actually done this many times and she runs into one of the versions of herself that keeps failing. I know, but I was like, oh my God, yeah. I can't do that. Like that just seems like oh too much goodness. to keep up with. And thank God, because now there's so many multiverse stories. I'm like, phew, okay. I mean, again, finger on the pulse. But um, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it was, I think it worked pretty well. I mean, there's just enough in there to like get a sense that there's like this whole time travel apparatus, but having it be like, right share like um gig economy eyes you can kind of like say oh it's you know, <laughs> it's another a company's taking care of all the technical stuff but there's i feel like there's still like enough crumbs of like time travel like 
um, shenanigans. Like, you know, you kind of touch on a little bootstrap paradox, a little like, you know, a little um, butterfly effect. Like there's there's mm-hmm. there's enough there that will satisfy me, at least as like someone who likes that stuff as well. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, I love the visual cues in the book because like in like the middle of the book, you have like the battery Mm. Uh, lifespan and I was like oh man <laughs> like time is running out there's nothing more stressful than like a low battery phone because yeah what are you gonna do <laughs> a low battery phone in the 90s before cell phones were invented and you're like how am I gonna charge this um yeah that was also a very early idea I had of like the chapter header should be the cell phone battery running out it would just be really cute <laughs> and also a little anxiety the first time you see the battery you're like oh no <laughs> Yeah, when she when she was saying like, oh man, my phone dies like so quickly because you know it's like an older model, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh no, like how <laughs> like how long does she have to stay in the past? Like, there's no yeah. way she can last like more than like two weeks on like even if her phone was like fully charged. So I thought yep. it was like a great way to pace the story. <laughs> oh, so I always thanks. keep a battery pack on me. I know, I know. She should because, she, but you know, that was Sam. She's like, yeah, whatever. I mean, when you're a teenager, you're like never prepared. <laughs> or you're always prepared. I've also like seen like the opposite of uh, Gen Z who just like have their life together and like know exactly what they're doing. And they're so mm. knowledgeable because, you know, the internet is at their fingertips. That's true. They're so socially aware. And then you have the other Gen Zs who like have not lived a real life outside of the yeah, internet. Yeah, outside the and internet and like, their bedrooms. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, you're so right about that because they have so much access to information and so, first of all, all of them have really good hair and makeup. <laughs> I'm like, wow, if only I knew how to, like, do my hair in, in high school. That would have been a real game changer for myself. Yeah, but they also have filters, too. You have to I know. And then, you know, <laughs> but I would hate to also be on social media. Like, can you imagine if we had it as teens? I would have been a mess. My life would have been ruined 10 times. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the closest thing I can think of is, like... Sangha. My brother did this, where he would have his friend call the girl that he had a crush on, but they would three-way him in so he can listen in. And that's, like, the closest thing to, like, social media stalking, I think, from, like, (laughs) the late 90s. That was also how girls were mean-girled to each other. They would talk... They would make somebody else talk shit, and then secretly that person was listening. Like yeah. that, and Mean Girls the movie show. Mean Girls, really well. yeah. yeah, that's happened to me for before for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one one thing that I really loved about your book is the relationship that um, Sam has with her harmony, and mm-hmm. uh, I think this is a relationship that our generation couldn't have had without cell phones because. Uh, back in like the '90s and early 2000s, in order to yeah, a lot of our grandparents lived overseas. So it's like mm-hmm. in order to contact them, you have to use like a phone call card, card yeah. like, phone card, yeah. like uh, texting wasn't like mainstream yet. And now like FaceTime. Koreans, Koreans, it's like we have cacao talk. We use it for everything. everything. And it is it is crazy. Like you can use you can use it to like sell items. They have mm-hmm. cacao taxi, like cacao Venmo. It's it's nuts. And um, it's just like nice for my mom, at least, because she had to go so long without, like, communicating with her own mother. But now they, like, can do video video calls. And I just loved how Sam, like, dictated these voice notes to her harmony. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, like, really clever. Uh, where did that idea come from? Um, I th- you know, it's interesting. It evolved because in the beginning, I think I had Sam have a podcast And so she was recording her podcast. And then eventually I was like, no, I don't want her to have a podcast. She has to go on a bit of a journey to figure out herself. So I turned the podcast into a a note to her grandma. And so I thought, oh, this is a cute way for them to have a bond. They have our own separate thing. And it's also a way for her grandma to see a side of Sam that no one else sees, um, which, you know, makes their relationship stronger and then it, it raises the stakes for her. So, you know, it's not a spoiler in the very beginning of the book, her grandma um, has a heart attack and that's kind of what's 
instigates the fight between Sam and Priscilla because Priscilla and Hymene have never gotten along in Sam's life. And so Sam is very resentful of how her mom reacts to her grandma being in the hospital. And the voice notes were a real fun way for me to have them bond and also for us to hear Sam's inner thoughts a little bit and for a way for her to kind of monologue because, you know, she time travels and there's no one that she can confide in about her time travel, really. And so it was a way for her to be able to do that. So it ended up being a very helpful device for a lot of things that Sam needed to do. Um, and I think it was my editor who is younger than me that was like, I initially had them be something else. Oh, she was just recording. And then yeah, like vlogging. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my editor was like, do you know what kids do? They do voice notes. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> so they turned into voice notes. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that Harmony and Sam are able to uh, converse in English, like I thought that was like really special too. Um, bilingualism, or I guess the lack of it, are very big aspects to uh, being part of like an immigrant family. Um, and Priscilla is fluent in Korean, and you you uh, get a sense that like she uses English as a way to keep control of like her conversations because she is very like type A. Like, was that something that you? found challenging like showing like the language dynamics in your book no it actually is very second nature to me because I don't know if you guys have read any of the stuff about everything everywhere all at once but you know a lot of that movie is really interesting in how they speak Cantonese Mandarin English like in that first like act and a lot of people were like that's confusing and I'm like clearly none of you grew up in like an Asian household (laughs) because you know, the the jumping between languages, I mean, obviously for me, it was just Korean and English because Korean only has one dialect. But um, I can understand that whole Mandarin Cantonese English because when you grow up in an immigrant family, like language becomes so fluid and um, it's also very, it can be a barrier as well. So, you know, my parents always spoke to me in Korean And I spoke Korean as a kid and especially my grandma did live with me when I was a little kid. So I benefited from that. Um, And then as I got older, I totally lost my Korean facility. Like I, I can still speak it, but very rudimentary level. And especially if I don't, and I'm not around a lot of Korean speakers for a long time, I just completely lose. Like I forget, I forget almost everything, but I have a fluent, um, fluent, uh, comprehension. So, you know, if you speak to me in Korean, I can understand everything you're saying. Um, and my grandma, obviously my grandma though, for, I had two grandmas. I had my mom's grandma only spoke Korean. I mean, my mom's mom. And then my dad's mom spoke English because she came here and kind of learned to speak English. And she liked, she liked watching like soap operas and stuff. So I could speak to that, my grandma a little easier than my, my way, I mean, my, my mom's mom. And it's really interesting to watch my mom and my son because my mom will just, because he understands English really well, he'll, she'll start speaking to him in English. And I'm like, mom, speak to him in Korean because he understands, you know, he's so little that he's soaking it all up, but my mom can speak English. So she's like, okay, I, I, you know, she's just trying to make the communication very clear with him. And I'm like, no, 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 keep the communication. Cause I'm like so sad at the idea of him not understanding Korean. Um, But, you know, I barely was able to hold on to my grasp of Korean, having grown up literally only hearing Korean at home. So I don't think my son stands a chance. Like, he's going to have to, like, go to Korean school, unlike me. Um, But, yeah, the language stuff, it came very naturally to me, like, how it would be used, what kind of barriers, what kind of openings it could provide, like, how... Priscilla not speaking it on purpose is such a choice and it says so much about her because I would give anything to be fluent in Korean. Like if I could speak Korean really well, what a gift. But if you, in high school, I would have been like, oh, who cares? You know? Um, So it's interesting for me to see Priscilla's like kind of stunted with that. Like she never kind of like grew out of that. Um, Yeah. And 
And it takes her daughter who like is like immersed in Korean pop culture and to be like, you should speak Korean and stuff, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that I was thinking about this too. Like these days being bilingual isn't something that you get ostracized for. At least it's something that I guess is more accepted. And one of the things that your, your book also explores is just like those at least compared to today, those more regressive, like 90s attitudes towards like anything quote unquote foreign or different. And just the way that like even casual slurs are thrown around, like it's normal, right? And we see a lot of people talk about how like if any of the shows that we watched in the 90s were premiering today, it'd be canceled immediately. And it's because like yeah, yeah. attitudes were just so different back then. And I guess in terms of writing and portraying that time period, like to me, it just it would have felt so difficult to like have to write the things that these kids were saying to each other. Like, how was that for you? Yeah, I actually pulled back. You know, there's a lot of stuff I put in there just to like let it out. Like, this is authentic to how these kids talked. I know. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I'm gonna pull back a bit because even if it's accurate, like I don't want to write some of the stuff down. Like, you know, um, people get it, you know. But I did want, you know, for example, like somebody calls her a psycho. <laughs> You, nobody does that anymore. It's that's an ableist word. Um, someone yells at the principal, "Kill yourself!" You know, it's like so harsh. And um, the teachers are racist. You know, not even low key, pretty high key racist. Um, obviously, some of the kids could be pretty racist too. And so, I really had to kind of the one thing I thought it would just be fun to go back to the nineties, but I realized when I was having to write some of these microaggressions and things, it was actually kind of like, oh, kind of I'm reliving a bit of trauma that I didn't realize was traumatic until I'm an adult, you know? Cause I think when you're a teen, you kind of take a lot of things in stride up to a certain point, obviously, but you face a lot of bullshit and you're like, whatever, you know, and you just kind of like move on. You have kind of a thick skin, but when you grow older and you think about some of the stuff you went through as a teen, you're like, um, that was actually really messed up. <laughs> You know, especially like a lot of things with like, like rape culture, all this stuff, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you just don't, I think in a way it's protective and you kind of shield it from being like feeling like the the full weight of that kind of trauma. So yeah, going through that and seeing how kids talked, how unevolved, you know, especially like the whole thing with like how girls, teenage girls are marketed to and fashion magazines and magazines at that time and um, body image stuff, like the fat phobia, like so much crap, you know? And it made me realize like, oh my God, I can't believe like I survived being a teenage girl during this time. <laughs> um, you know, it's it was kind of traumatic. And so it was a little difficult for me uh, to have to get into that headspace. Um, it felt very foreign to me, even though I grew up in it. Because now it's just so, the the world is very different. Yeah, you have Gen Zs being like, gender is a construct and (laughs) really speaking Mm -hmm. out. I was like, wow, that's that's a really different generation. (laughs) Because Sam is kind of like the antithesis of like what we kind of imagine like Asian American girls to be in like a very stereotypical way. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. they're quiet. They just, you know, uh, docile. They just have thick skin but it's like Mm -hmm. no this generation they're very angry and very outspoken and yeah yeah like was that challenging like getting that gen z voice right when you're not part of that generation it's gonna sound this is gonna sound bad but no it wasn't because i'm so you're young at heart (laughs) well when i'm young at heart because i write ya but no but and because i write ya i am very plugged in to Gen Z stuff, right? Not like fully because, you know, I look at some of their fashion and nail choices and I'm like, what's happening? But I'm still old in that way. But I get, you know, I am witnessing their activism. I I am a part of an industry where we have to, we write for kids and we are very much paying attention. Like YA specifically is very much at the forefront of a lot of this stuff. Like we've been talking about diversity before like years before Hollywood years before in adult a liter, like adult fiction is finally kind of like oh maybe you know they're kind of like getting into it now and figuring stuff out um 
as an industry, they're pretty far ahead with that stuff. So I've been in that headspace for a long time of like, for lack of a better word, like inclusive, progressive kind of thinking. It's just part of my, part of my life. Um, And I I am, I am more, I do not think like Priscilla. I think like Sam, you know, when I view the world, I am an, I am very outspoken. I used to get into a shit ton of fights with and arguments with people about race in college and high school. I was like a fighter always. So I really related to Sam. Like if I was Gen Z, I'd be like Sam. Cause also there's a bit of self-righteousness, right? A little bit of privilege that she comes from too, or she thinks like, it's so easy. Mom, why don't you just, why, you know, why aren't you more, why aren't you recycling? You know, like she's just always lecturing her mom about shit. And she, I'm like, you know, there's also like a side when you become an adult and also you have perspective with life and wisdom where you can't make those choices as easily as when you're a teenager. You know, you can't just, um, not to make excuses for not, you know, making the world a better place, but there are some limitations when you become an adult and it's not just because your parents are stupid and dumb. But that's what you think when you're a teenager, right? Like, oh, my parents are stupid and dumb. No, there are other things going on and you'll figure it out too when you're older. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting. I really much, much more relate to Sam in that way. Um, but I totally understand. I can write Priscilla too. It's just because I grew up around the same time as her. So I'm like, there are people that I know that are my age that are Priscilla for sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, there are two, there's two different different types of strengths you know priscilla and sam are mm-hmm. both very sen yojas mm-hmm. like very very strong women and just because priscilla goes about it in a more subtle delicate way doesn't mm-hmm. mean that she's any less uh like righteous as sam so i really yeah. liked how you showed that type of strength in your book um so the 90s and the 2000s are kind of trending again because um fashion it goes in a 20-year cycle are there any 90s trends that you've seen resurface and you're like that should never have come back (laughs) oh it's so funny because I was at the playground with my son the other day and the thing about playgrounds is teenagers like preteens love hanging out at playgrounds do you remember like doing that too when you had nowhere else to hang out? So you're like, we're just going to go to the playground. And so, and I saw these girls and I'm like, oh my God, their outfits. It was literally what I I could have been wearing at that age. And it was making me laugh. Um, I kind of love a lot of the nineties trends. Let's, I, I really like the baggy clothes again. I'm like, yes, that's great. I love it. Don't love the midriff. Don't love that. No teenage girl wants to show their midriff. It's really like a sensitive time. Obviously, this is not 90s. This is aughts, but I can't believe effing low-waisted jeans are back. <laughs> oh, what did yeah. we did so much to move from that horrible period of time? And but I really love like a lot of the shoes, like platform boots and like docks and like uh, a lot of the sneakers that are back in style. Um are I you love- a, are you a fan of boots with the fur? I I just have to ask. <laughs> what do you mean, like sheer lined? Like I've I've been seeing kids wear boots with like very that are like very furry, and I oh, was like, I don't oh think my so. <laughs> no, not, I don't know if I've seen like that. The, not like the Muppet version of Uggs. Oh uh. God, <laughs> gosh, I don't think I've seen that yet. But I would probably not. I don't think. <laughs> I think the resurgence of Uggs is LOL because I think Uggs are horrifying. Um, they're not even good for like what their like perceived purpose no, is. No, you can't warm. get them no. wet. You can't get them wet. You'll ruin the the suede. Um, I think they're but great that's for what indoor. The popular girls wore though. <laughs> yes, like, back in my time in high school, it was always like that pink and gray North Face. Uh, Face jacket mm, mm, with like mm. the Uggs, and I'm like, that's what the cheerleaders all wore. Oh. Like it was like a freaking uniform. Oh yeah, you're younger like the than us. For me, like when I was in high yeah. school, like the all white case was. I think your high school fashion was probably way worse than mine. I think mine was like I was able to wear baggy jeans and like hide my body, and it was cool. But I feel like the aughts, all the girls suddenly 
had to share their bodies more. And I was yeah, like, Oof, it, I would it, was a, it was a rough time for us. I mean, the camisole tops <laughs> oh. like made a comeback. And I was like, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> like girls wearing like, like pajama camisoles. I'm like, you're, you're wearing like, oh, you know what pajamas. I hate is what they, they're trying to now like, um, they're trying to spin this as flared leggings. I'm like, you mean yoga pants? <laughs> yoga pants are back. Ugh. Um, as like, I was so skinny when I was a teenager. So wearing yoga pants and stuff, I look so awkward. So I have such bad, bad associations with that kind of stuff. But I do love a lot. I love baby doll dresses. I love like plaid skirts. I love ankle boots. I love, um, I love them, you know, high-waisted baggier jeans. Like I wear all this stuff, um, as a 40 year old, but, um, yeah, the midriff, no, thank you. Low rise jeans. No, thank you. Hideous. There's some colors too, where I'm like, ugh. I just, I'm like, why? I mean, the 2000s was all about orange and yes, I hate it. There's so a lot much. of orange coming back right now, by the I way. I know, I know. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, oh, my youth is coming back <laughs> to haunt me. I used to remember when I started dating my wife, the first thing she did was go through my wardrobe and throw out all my baggy clothes. But now that they're back, I'm like, can I have my baggy clothes again? She's like, no, <laughs> veto, not allowed. I'm telling you, fashion comes back in 20-year yeah, cycles. Body never- body parts are trending. <laughs> like, the stuff that, like, made, um, like, girls, like, quote-unquote, like, desirable and pretty like those standards have flipped they change constantly (laughs) so i thought it was really interesting that like when sam travels back in time like her clothes sort of blends in (laughs) with the 95 crowd i was thinking like like, why are you wearing like a victorian gown during this time (laughs) exactly because you know back to the future the 50s and 80s it was kind of like whoa if you wore what you wore in the 80s and the 50s, like, let's say you were a girl. First of all, they'd be like, why are you wearing jeans? Right. Like and they're like, naked. yeah. And then Marty's like wearing that puffy vest, which wasn't invented, you know, a down puffy <laughs> vest. So, but in my book, I'm like 90s to 2025 is like, you could get away with it depending on what you're wearing. I, I was actually trying to think, what could Sam wear that would make her like people be like, what the F are you wearing? But there's nothing. There's nothing that would make you pause and be like, in the 90s, you'd just be like, okay, she's just deciding to wear something not in fashion, but it's not outrageous, like where you look like a weird freak on the street or something, you know? So, yeah, there was nothing that I could think of that would be that crazy. So instead, I decided to go the other way and have her wear clothes where she could blend in. Yeah. If only it was like 1998, 99, when the ASEAN style was in, have like, Oh, <laughs> dyed hair. Oh, like the gel hair, the bleach, <laughs> mm-hmm. all the Nautica yeah. and Tommy Hilfiger. I know, I know. I mean, it was still a little bit there, you know. I have like the Asian girls, um, in the in the book, like they all kind of have like the straightened sun and hair, and like they were Calvin Klein and stuff. Um, oh my gosh, what a time! Yeah, yeah, what a time. <laughs> yeah. While reading this book, I was just like, wow, I'm I'm old now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, um, I guess as we wind down this conversation, um, I know you're busy with book launch, um, but are you working on anything, anything else? What's what's next in the Moringu uh, uh, universe? I am. Yes, I am working on stuff I probably can't talk about. It's just always like that. Um, hopefully I'll be able to talk about us. <laughs> But I'm always writing books. I'm always working on books. Um, obviously, always trying to get my books made into movies and stuff. So that's all happening in the background. Um, and yeah, hopefully. But um, I'm very active on social media with uh, all my updates. So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter uh, at Maureen Goo. Also, now I am on TikTok. I've done it. Um so it's uh I am I'm always working on books. Awesome. You'll, yeah, you'll always also you'll comics always, too. Yeah, I worked on the um I did the f- the relaunch of the Silk series for Marvel, which was really fun. That's what I worked on during the pandemic, and it was such a lifesaver. Um, 
because I didn't want to write a, I didn't want to actively be writing another book, like a new one. I was like taking a break. So I decided to work on the comics and that was really fun. Um, I didn't have the time to work on the second. They have like two more series um, after mine, but it did well. So people, they're like keeping Silk going. I'm really excited. She was really fun to write. Um, And I'm not writing out comics forever. I would love to go back to comics too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Book Simple. But so great to have you back. Um, oh, let's not you. wait another six years before we have you back on again. <laughs> I know. Hopefully I'll have, you know, a book coming out more frequently than every four years. So, <laughs> yeah. well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. And that was Maureen Gu. Her latest novel, Throwback, um, is available now at bookstores everywhere, including our Books and bookshop. As always, if you um, purchase a book off of our online bookstore, uh, not only do you support your local bookstores, but also the Books and Boba podcast. And we do appreciate everyone who's bought off of our bookstore. Um, you can probably find all of Maureen's books, actually, in our bookshop. So definitely check it out. They're all a lot of fun. Yeah. I think comedy is definitely Maureen Gu's. <laughs> like bread and butter i had such a fun time reading this book yeah all right um so before we go um rira why don't you remind us what we are reading for book club this month so our april 2023 book club pick is vera wong's unsolicited advice for murderers and it's by jesse q sutanto the author of dal a for aunties uh, the book is about a 60-year-old widow who runs a tea shop in San Francisco's Chinatown. And uh, she finds a body with uh, a flash drive. Just It just shows up in, in her tea shop. And she's, she thinks that she can do a better job than the investigators. So she investigates the murder herself. Um, yeah. I absolutely love this premise because I am like a Miss Marple fan so i'm all about like old ladies and like like nosy um civilian detectives so i'm very excited to read this book yeah so please read along with us um if you've already finished the book and have things to say about it please let us know on our degrees forums um this is a murder mystery so please use spoiler tags if you are going to be discussing anything Related to the solving of the mystery. Um, But yeah, looking forward to including your feedback on our book discussion episode. Um, But with that, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Podcast Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like a podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. Every week, we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in Baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.